I want you to think back to a time, maybe a few years back, maybe it was a decade or so ago, maybe it was just a few months ago, but I want you to think back to a conversation, an interaction that you had with someone that God just kind of brought that person into your path, uh, into your life, in a way just when you needed it. And I don't know who that is for you. Maybe it's, it was a coach at a certain moment. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was a, a friend of your parents. Maybe it was just a friend that you had. Maybe it was someone who was in your neighborhood who just knew you, knew your family. And in that moment, that became one of those defining moments for you. Like, when you're thinking back on that even right now, you're like, that was a moment where my life, the whole trajectory just kind of took a, a change. It, it just kind of changed direction in a way that, that God used that person. Maybe it was the very first time that you actually hear, heard about God's love. Maybe it was just somewhere in your life where someone was brought across your path that kind of helped you go to a better direction, and maybe from where you were. I don't know what that is for you, but that defining moment is a crucial moment in our lives. And we're getting ready to dive into this series called Disciple, this idea of kind of be one, make one, this idea of be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. We'll kind of unpack a little bit of what that means, and we'll go into this journey of what it means to turn around and try to bring other people along in that journey to, to kind of make one with the partnership of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like to do this? Because that defining moment defined the author of the book we're gonna look at. This is going through the Gospel of Matthew, right? And, and if you don't know anything much about the, kind of the Gospel accounts, here's the deal. So there's four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they kind of tell this eyewitness story to the teachings, the life, the expectations, kind of who Jesus was, his identity, what he was about, and they capture that in a way for us to understand. And if you don't know, if you haven't been around Elements for a while, actually in 2014, we kind of went through the Gospel of Mark with this idea of, you know, we want to be people who live under no other name. We kind of called the series that. And then we look through Luke two years ago in, in 2016, this idea of Jesus. And we looked at through this message of how it comes through the gospel. And this is 2018. We're going through Matthew. We're getting ready to just kind of start that journey. We're not going verse by verse, we're not, but we're going to spend some chunk of time here looking at it. And in 2020, just take a wild guess. It's not complicated. There's only one left. Um, but the reality is, so if you're kind of new to Elements, we deliberately have been working on the, a pattern of kind of saying, hey, you know, we want to go through the Bible. We teach the Bible. That's, that's what we kind of come back to, and we want to help people unpack the biblical truths for our present day and the reality of application to life and living. And, but we kind of go through a New Testament book and an Old Testament book every year, and then we'll do some topical series and stuff, but it's all tied back to the biblical truth that we see in the life of Jesus, and we see displayed through the life of the early church and the teachings of that that are captured here in the Bible. And so we look at this idea of being a disciple. Now, what's a disciple? Is it just an intern? Well, no. How many of you have been an intern before? That's a cruddy job, right? Let's just be honest. An intern, here's the job of an intern, right? Like, you're under management, and basically they tell you to go do all the stuff that they don't want to do, Right? And then somewhere along the line, they're hoping that you'll catch and kind of understand. So internships are really this idea of task-based. Okay, go do this task. Go, go do this because I don't want to do it, or go do this because I need help doing it, or whatever that may be. That's kind of an internship. But this idea of discipleship is so much more than that. 
It really is this idea of apprenticeship, and we don't see that on display so much in our cultural context these days. Uh, Maybe if you were an artist and you're kind of studying under another artist and you're kind of working, trying to get a grasp of how they do what they do and so you can kind of take that on. Maybe a trade school in some ways may kind of get at that. But apprenticeship, this idea of on-the-job, on-the-go training, that you would begin to mimic the one that you're following after. In fact, there's an old rabbi saying, because Jesus was a rabbi. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, but he was a Jewish rabbi. And in this old Jewish saying that said, may the dust of your rabbi always be upon you. It's an old saying. What's it mean? It means, may your proximity to the one that you follow be so close that the dust that they're kicking up would be all over you, so that you would learn to be one who says what they say, does what they do, thinks the way they think, reacts the way they react. Apprenticeship. That's the notion of what a disciple means. So it's not an internship. It's this idea of becoming more and more like Jesus. It is a calling, not an invitation to just hang around. It's to be with and to travel with and to actually become a little bit more like the one that you follow. So the author of this gospel, Matthew, right? What's his backstory? Well, he's Jewish, we know that. He's also a traitor. That's harsh. Any traitors here? I'm just kidding, don't raise your hand. Um, but this idea of, like, he's turned his back on his people. He's become a tax collector. Ooh. That would be like us saying IRS agent. Ooh. And just something creepy about it, right? And, and this idea of a tax collector, what he's done is he's shamed his family. Pretty much everyone's cut ties with him. He's an outcast, even though he's very well known. And he's in this city, and tax collector would have been one who sat at this tax collector booth, which is kind of elevated near a port of entry, and people would have come by, and they would have paid their taxes to him, to Matthew. And Matthew would sit there day after day, and he would take taxes. But here's what tax collectors would do, because this is how you made your money. You would not only take the tax from the Jewish people that were there. Rome is occupied this remember? And they're making uh, kind of them subjugation, and they are collecting taxes to build the Roman projects that they want to do. So they're taxing you. You're, you're bringing your taxes to Matthew. But Matthew would say, look, you owe, you know, 100 bucks. Actually, I just checked the book, and you owe 150. Sorry. Life's tough, isn't it? And they'd pay 150 bucks or so. And $50 would go right in Matthew's pocket. Because that's how tax collectors make money. That's why they're awesome people and everyone. Hello. Sarcasm. This idea that people wouldn't like to hang around tax collectors, would they? It's this uh, stigma that would be upon them. And so he would be collecting these taxes day after day. This is what he knows. It's what he did until one day. Someone that he knew, knew about maybe, came by and said something to him that became a defining moment for him. 
And in that moment, here's what we see. Matthew chapter nine, verse nine says this. As Jesus went on from there, he's in this region in Capernaum, he saw a man named Matthew. Everybody knows Matthew's name. He's sitting at a tax collector's booth, and Jesus gives a two-word calling. We see it all over the New Testament. Matthew, follow me. And then I'm just assuming Jesus began to walk away. And Matthew, in this split-second moment, looks at his life and says, I've been doing this. There's something about this guy. There's something about this rabbi. And he leaves everything and follows after Jesus. The verse goes on. He got up and followed him. Now, I know in the context of reading this, here's what we picture. Jesus walked up to Matthew. Matthew, follow me. And then Matthew going, like some Star Wars trance, and takes off and follows Jesus. That's not what happened, okay? It's not Jedi Jesus, okay? Oh, I see this all over scripture, these, like, these weird interactions that, like, just things change, and you're like, I don't, like, if I walked up to, to Luke, you're like, Luke, follow me. Like, Luke would be like, I'm hot and tired and no. Um, so, like, this idea that we don't get this reaction, but you have to understand, for a rabbi to call you and to say you are worthy enough, to that was a big, big deal. Like, we don't understand, but rabbis were the rock stars. That would be like a band, like your favorite band, coming up to you and saying, hey, be a roadie with us. And then you'd be like, oh, okay. I don't like Starbucks that much. Off I go, right? And so you would take off. You would be a part of that. Something happened in this moment. It became a defining moment for Matthew. So much so that he begins to follow after Jesus. We read just a couple verses later, which probably took a little bit of time because it's not like it happened immediately. But if you scroll down a little bit in your Bible, you begin to see that Jesus recognize Matthew, calls him. Matthew then goes and throws a party because how cool is that, right? He throws a party. Verse 10, it says this, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and the disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Let's just insert what's happening. Why does... Why does your master eat with those people? Because I don't know if you recognize the clientele who has showed up at Matthew's house. They're kind of like Matthew. And Matthew's got this rep. Like, it's the Matthew we all know. And you're eating with all the people that Matthew knows, so you're eating with them. Why does he do that? Jesus overhears this. And he comes back with this. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call, not call the righteous, but to call sinners. Go and learn what this means. That is a rabbi secret. When a rabbi would say to the Talmud, to the people who were following after him, learn what this means, means you don't understand what it means. So Jesus would look at the Pharisees and say, you think you have it all together, you think you understand it, but you go and learn what this means. He quotes Hosea 6.6, and this idea of, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
The word mercy is the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed's used 458 times in the Old Testament. It's a word that describes the kind of love that God has for his people, this covenantal kind of love. This idea of being a steadfast, loyal kind of love, faithful to the end. It's covenant, one that you can't break. It's always used as a description of this is the kind of love God has for Israel. It's the kind of love he has for his people. This steadfast love, it's our equivalent to grace in the New Testament. Hesed, love. I desire this love relationship, not just sacrifice. Meaning, I can be a person that goes to church every single Sunday. And I can be a person who does a lot of religious duties, a lot of religious activities. And my heart can be very far from God. That's what God's saying. I want your heart. I desire mercy. I desire this hesed love, one to another. That's what I long to see. I don't want something different. I don't want rituals. And that's not that those are bad. But when your heart is divorced from that, then you're just going through the motions. See, here's what he wants. A real relationship of love for God is always greater than religious rituals practiced for God. This hesed kind of love, this real relationship we have with God, the good, the bad, the ugly, the ups and downs, I'm right there with you. Even when I'm frustrated and even when I'm filled with joy, I'm real and I'm being honest with God. That's what he desires. It took a willing heart for Matthew to leave his known to follow Jesus into the unknown. Think about that. He had probably great wealth, and he was set for life. And there was something about the life of Jesus that when Jesus called him and said, I want you to follow me, he left it all. That was a willful decision on his part. That was severe obedience in that moment for Matthew. It was a defining moment for him where he said, I, I've got to go. The trajectory of my life has got to change in this moment. And there was a willingness in his heart to follow after Jesus, even though he maybe didn't even know all of what's gonna happen. And what you understand as you study the life of Matthew and begin to see this more and more, and the disciples who are following after Jesus, is that's what Jesus wants most, is a willing heart and a growing willingness within that heart, to follow after him. The heart of a disciple has got to be a willing heart, growing in willingness. That's what Jesus wants to shape within his followers then, and listen, his followers today. The question is, how's your heart? How's your willingness to follow Jesus, to do what he would do, to go where he would go, to say what he would say, to respond the way he would respond. How are you doing in that? A willingness to go where he goes, to do what he does. A willingness that isn't reluctant or hesitant, but a heart that's willing to go, even when you don't know everything that's going on. That's the kind of heart that Jesus longs to create in his disciples. The ones who are following after him today. Listen, that's you, that's me. 
a willing heart. I don't know about you. More often than I'd like to admit, I've got a reluctant heart. Maybe more often than I'd like to admit, I've got a hesitant heart. I'd like to know the plan first, Jesus. Could you just kind of spell that out just a little bit? Okay, I don't need all 10 steps. How about two? Could we start with two? Prefer five, but I'm cool with two. And Jesus is like, nah, maybe half. I want you to follow me. I want to see the willingness in your heart to go where I go and do what I do. So are you? I think that's a question that Jesus probably asked his disciples often. It's what Matthew began to run into, and why is that? I think it's because Jesus had a willing heart. It's just who he is. It's just what he does. In fact, if you have your Bible turned back one chapter, there's this incredible encounter that we see after Jesus is te- taught kind of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, 7. It's an inc- I'm skipping all of it. It's killing me as a preacher to skip the whole passage. But we'll come back to it some other time, like in the next 10 years or so. But this idea, Jesus finishes this most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He taught it all the time. Okay? It wasn't just a one and done thing. He, he spoke about it a lot. It has riveting things to say for our life and how we live following after him. But in the context, he's finished this. He's coming back down the mountain where he's taught all these people and there's a dude that bumps into him and I say dude because you would recognize this dude like you may not recognize this dude but we all recognize this dude okay you'll get it in a second so here's what happens when Jesus came down from the hill great crowds followed him so he's got lots of people around him but there's one that stands out and then a man with a skin disease came to Jesus leprosy The man bowed before him and said, Lord, if you can heal me, you can heal me if you will. That's what he says. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I will be healed. And immediately the man was healed from his disease, from leprosy. Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone about this, right, uh, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded of those who suffered with leprosy, that when they were made clean, they had to go do this ritual. And he said, you go do that and show people that you're clean. Mark and Luke say the same story that Matthew does. Here, the crazy thing is none of them tell us his name. Like, we don't know anything about him. Here's what we know. He's got a condition, Right? How many of you have bumped into people with a condition in life, right? Sometimes you can see it, and other times you see it afterwards, right? Look, let's be real here. Can we be real? We all have recognized the dude, right? You've seen them in your life. And in that moment, there's always that internal like, oh, right? That's just being real. Internally, there's a moment where you're like, oh, let's go to the crowd, right? There's that moment. We all face it. Leprosy was the most dreaded disease in the New Testament. The condition would render the body a mass of ulcers and uh, skin decay. Fingers would uh, begin to curl up and gnarl. 
blotches of skin would begin to discolor and stink. There was even certain types of leprosy that would begin to numb the nerve endings. It could lead to the loss of limbs or a foot or fingers or digits or all of that. I have a picture to show you because it's the reality of leprosy. You realize leprosy is still diagnosed today. Um, and 200,000 cases every year. Now, this is a tame picture of leprosy. Just Google it. This idea that we would recognize a condition. Now, sometimes the conditions we see, sometimes the conditions we don't see until afterwards. And it's in those moments where we're stuck. Leprosy, as one man described it, was death by inches. It began begin to eat away at the body. Now, we have medicine today that can help with that, but many who live in poverty, who are malnourished, struggle to get what they need to fight back against leprosy. If left untreated, it can go. Can you imagine the isolation this man felt? Where do lepers live? Well, they don't live at home. And they don't live in a hotel. They, they live in a leper colony because leprosy was seen as a contagious disease. You certainly didn't touch anyone. In fact, anyone who had leprosy, when they walked through a crowd, if they were even allowed to get near a crowd, would have to yell the words, unclean, unclean, and people would back out of the way. That was life. Could you imagine the isolation? When was the last time he actually felt human touch? Someone putting maybe a hand even on his shoulder. Five years? Ten years? How long had it been? Can you imagine the ache and loneliness that this man felt in that moment as he approaches Jesus? For some, they don't have to imagine the feelings. For some of you here, you may know those feelings. For some in our society, they may know those feelings. The recently maybe divorced know that feeling. So do the handicapped. The unemployed have maybe felt it. The undereducated may sense it. Some single moms have felt it. We tend to keep our distance from the depressed and may even try to avoid the terminally ill or the mentally challenged. We have neighborhoods for immigrants, convalescent homes for the elderly, schools for the simple, centers for the addicted, and prisons for the criminal. In our cultural context, we have done a pretty good job of creating systems in order to avoid the untouchables of our society. And my hunch is there's been a wrestling match within you, just as there has been within me to say, I, I, I don't know if I want to reach out. I'll acknowledge from afar, but to reach out means I'm entering in. It means I'm willing. Only God knows how many people live around us who are living quiet, lonely lives, infected by the pain of their isolation, the fear of rejection, the memories of the last time they tried. But it's in this moment, this defining moment for this man, that the sense of isolation and the untouchable status that he's carried, Jesus ignores it all. 
And Jesus does something radical, and he does it willingly. He reaches out his hands. Touch is a powerful thing, isn't it? We can use words to describe love to people. We can use words to describe tenderness or caring or being for someone. But there's no words that really capture a hug. There's no words that really capture a hand on the shoulder and looking them in the eye. Even the silence that's in that moment. There's no words that capture that. Touch is a powerful thing. And here's what we see in this story. We understand the condition of this man as he approached Jesus by the look of his hands. But we could tell a lot about the condition of Jesus' heart by what he does with his hands. You recognize Matthew made it very clear that this man was not healed by Jesus' touch. He was healed when Jesus said, be healed. The words are what healed his disease. Jesus' touch is what healed his heart. And as a disciple, a follower of Jesus, one who is apprenticing after him, how's your heart? How's the willingness of your heart to enter in, to reach out to what society might say is the untouchables? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at your hands. We use our hands all the time. Everybody has got their own unique fingerprint. We know that. For some, you may have a ring on your finger signifying a decision that you made, a commitment that you have, but my hunch is here's the reality. You can tell a lot about a person by their hands, can't you? You can typically tell kind of an age bracket that they may be in. I remember my friend Cowboy Bill, and I remember his hands because he would shake my hand, and it was like shaking two bricks, and he would crush me every single time. And his hands described a story of a life of a rancher that I knew nothing about. Your hands tell a story. I want you to think in your mind about the hands of Jesus. And recognize his hands were the artistry behind every handiwork of creation that you've ever seen. His hands would put mud on a blind guy's eyes sometime. How crazy is that? Jesus, I'd like to see again. Okay, hang on. Mud. Go wash in the river. And then he sees. Who does that? Jesus. His hands would draw on the dirt one day. Long enough. Whether he wrote words, doodled, I don't know. But it was long enough for an angry crowd of people who had stones to throw that they eventually dropped and walked away. And he turns to this woman who deserved punishment according to the law. He asks, where are your accusers? Neither do I. 
didn't have me. And he offers her a hand up and a hand forward into healing, into hope, into a new trajectory, into a new way of living, a defining moment for her. His hands would multiply a meal to feed thousands. His hands would break bread to offer a new covenant. His hands would one day spread out on a cross to show you how much you're loved. His hands touched the untouchable. They would reach out for every wanderer. His hands would cling to a cross, be pierced, so that those who are broken, with no hope, could be brought home to a life with God. His hands are still the ones that embrace you as you turn toward him. It's his hands that promise to hold you, to walk with you, and to never let go of you. These are powerful hands. Jesus didn't have to touch leprosy, but his heart was always willing to help people. How's your heart? The power of godly touch and a heart willing to follow after Jesus' example, that should mark the life of a disciple. That's our calling. Jesus willingly did so, and he challenges each follower to be willing and to have a heart of willingness that's growing in willingness, just like his is. He modeled a willingness to enter in. That's the reality of the whole incarnation that Jesus came to be with, not expecting us to make our way there. He came to be with He entered into the mess of our world, into the lives to reach us, to touch us, to change us, to lead us home into relationship with him, to life with God through faith and grace in him. That's the beautiful message of the gospel. So here's a couple questions to ponder, and then we're gonna move on into communion, into into worship, just to linger here a little bit. I wanna do a little exercise with you. A, A couple key questions. To grow in our resolve and willingness in following after Jesus, we must ask ourselves, why is my heart unwilling at times? If it helps you to think about this this week, what stops your heart from being willing? Am I willing to go where Jesus shows me to go and to do what he leads me to do so that I actually become more like him? Am I willing to do that or am I hesitant, reluctant to do that? So here's what I'd love for you to do. A couple quick challenges. One is this. I'd love uh, throughout this series just to challenge you with some memory verses, old school. Just to challenge you to say, hey, let's us as together, as as people who want to grow as a disciple, to have our lives changed. And I think everyone would say, yeah, I kind of want that, even if I'm reluctant, I I think I want that. Then here's the memory verse. It's Matthew 9, verse 12 and 13. Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, the broken. 
And here's the second thing. As Lyle comes here, we'll kind of begin to, to set this. I want you to think about the willingness of your own heart. That's an honest question. How am I doing in that? How's the willingness of my heart? Because that is to mark the life of a disciple. So if you're comfortable enough to do this, here's what I'd like to invite you to do. We just wanted to create a little bit of time to think about this. And so if it helps you, just close your eyes right where you're at. And I just want you to put your hands opened on your lap. And I want you to think and to ponder a little bit. We were in need. You were in need. I was in need. And Jesus willingly reached out to you. So just think about that. The fact that you were there. You were in need. Jesus saw that and he willingly reached out for you. Keep your eyes closed and just receive that again in a fresh way. As you have your hands open, maybe just whisper, God, I don't want to be closed off to you. I don't want to be gripped on to so many other things and pursuits in life that I miss the things that you have for me. I want to have open hands to receive. That's why we do communion often. Because we want to be people who receive the grace and the, the hope and love that we know we need. And so in a moment, you get to receive again the grace of being searched for by Jesus, to be given forgiveness, to be brought healing and hope to your life, even with the struggles you face. And lastly, if you're willing, maybe it's both hands open, maybe it's just reaching one hand up a little bit, in prayer, asking Jesus to lead you forward to where he wants to lead you, to be willing to go where he goes, do what he does, to say what he says, to love the way he loves. And this week as you pray, I just want to challenge you, maybe pray with your hands open. God, how am I doing? in my willingness? How am I growing that willingness? So Father, as we kind of linger here for a minute, we want to be an apprentice of you, one who has a changed heart and a changed mind, one who's growing in our willingness to follow you where you lead, to do what you would do. To say what you would say. To respond the way you'd respond. So as we have open hands before you, as we take communion in a moment, as we sing this song, imploring and, and asking you to make us more like Jesus, would you grow our willingness to be people like you,
We love you.